Good morning, New Vintage family. The donuts already go to your bloodstream? Let me try that again. Good morning, New Vintage family. Man, there's, can you tell that I used to be a camp program director? I used to have a, a theme word every summer with the campers, and it was equally for the campers as much as it was for the staff. Because working at camp with inner city at-risk youth is, uh, it's exhausting. I suppose it's probably no more exhausting than working with suburban privileged youth. But uh, our word week after week, I wanted to grab my uh, chapstick here. It's that time of the year. My word was enthusiasm. And I would drive it in week after week. What's today's word, kid? Enthusiasm. That's right. We're going to do cabin cleanup with what? Enthusiasm. Right, so that inner program director comes out sometimes. Like, we're going to do worship with what, church? Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Kathy got it. So, uh, Hannah Gatsby is a queer comedian. She has two specials on Netflix. In her most recent special, she opens up the comedy special, giving you the outline of what she is about to say, which makes the rest of the special all that much more enjoyable. Now, she takes, like, 10 or 15 minutes to do it. I'm not going to do that, but I am going to take a page out of Hannah Gatsby's playbook, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then when we get to it, you'll be like, well, he warned me. And so we're going to start out, and uh, for some of us, we're going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Oh, that takes me back. And then we're going to move into, that's interesting. I don't know that I've ever thought about it that way. Then we're going to uh, not so subtly slide into, hey, you can't talk to me like that. This is a church. <laughs> and then we're going to take a little time to put some salve on it and to engage the intellectual part of your brain. And by the end, if I've done my job correctly and the Holy Spirit is at work, you'd be like, okay, I was a little frustrated and I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to give today, but uh, boy, that was actually, uh, that was good. I needed to think of it that way. And so that's, uh, that's where we're headed today. Uh, and we're going to do it with enthusiasm I love it so the first time uh, that I was walking through a store I was walking through a Kmart and I saw twisted sisters stay hungry record on the end cap I don't know if you've ever seen the album art for twisted sisters stay hungry uh, the album that gave us we're not gonna take it yeah, now it's all coming together. I saw the lights go on across the board here. And I don't know if you've ever seen the album art for that record. Uh, and you can look it up later and you'll know what I'm talking about. But the first thing I thought was, man, they sure found an ugly woman to pose for the photo on that album cover. <laughs> My apologies to Dee Snyder, the lead vocalist of Twisted Sister. All that long, blonde, Goldilocks hair and makeup, I just thought it was an ugly woman. But you know, that song, their one hit wonder, We're Not Gonna Take It, I think spoke to a generation that felt trapped in conservative America. And I think there was a little bit of a heart cry, right? And I think the reason it resonated with so many of us, because I think so many of us, if, if anybody was anything like me, you knew something was amiss. Like something about the way our world is isn't right. It's like there was something in me, even at 14 years old, that was like, 
hesitant. Like, ah, I don't know. I don't feel like I can fully join in, right? Like, uh, I, I have a red flag about this whole thing called life and the way we live. Like, like there's a glitch in the matrix. And all of our songs and stories seem to emphasize that. And it didn't matter if it was a love song talking about a broken heart or it was a hip-hop or a punk song talking about a broken system. The point was still the same. What's the point? Like, what's the point if it all is just going to end up broken? I think it's when we wrestle with that question. What is the point? That we start to shed some new light on the Lord's Prayer. So it was 1980, 81, somewhere in there. I think I was uh, about 10 years old. And we took a field trip to the local movie theater. And most field trips up to that point were kind of boring. It was Blanford Nature Center, and you're like, eh, whatever. And then, we, you know, was, and we, like, we watched syrup dripping from a tree. It's like watching paint dry. Like, this is fascinating. But, you know, we weren't doing math, so I'll sit and watch maple drip from a tree. But then we went to the movie theater. And here's the thing about that field trip to the movie theater. Ever since that trip, at like 9, 10 years old, it changed my movie-going experience from that point on because I always thought of the theater as one big room. It was the room that we sat in. It was the only reality that I knew. That day, we got to take a tour of the control room. We went upstairs. We saw the big projectors. We saw, we met the camera operator. And I thought it was so cool because we got to see the multiple cans of the Empire Strikes Back that was just about to go on. And we got to stay and watch the movie. But the camera operator was explaining to us all the things that are going on in the control booth. And I realized that the theater isn't one room. It's actually two rooms working together. The theologians in the crowd just went, I see where this is going. And it was so interesting to me. There were so many things I didn't know. My young brain, like um, the size of the film can, like every film canister that they had to put on the reel. And then they told us about, uh, they didn't use this term, but um, the industry term, cigarette burns. Anybody know what cigarette burns are in, in some of the old movies? Yeah, the cigarette burns up in the corner, up in the right-hand corner of the film. If you watch the old films, all of a sudden you'll see a little circle, like a little burn dot just go boop really quick. And so what you would know as the film operator is you're about 30 minutes into the film. So there's a clock in there. And that clock, when it hits 29 minutes, you know, okay, you've got that other film queued up, right? You've got a second projector, a second reel, and that's the next part of the movie. And you're waiting for the boop up in the corner, right? No, audience typically doesn't notice it, but the film operator, he notices it, she notices it, right? And when you see it, boom, you hit the other projector. This one runs out. Movie keeps going. Audience doesn't even know Right, they're no, none the wiser. I learned about how hot a projector bulb gets because it's got to blast that film all the way to the other end. They talked about if something happens with the film, how quickly they have to shut it down or the film will actually melt. Those bulbs get up to 300 degrees. It gets toasty in there. 
I learned why movie trailers were three minutes long because it would take that long as the operator was putting you know the the film on this one for a movie trailer it would take him about that much time to get the next one queued up and run through the projector right and then all right that movie trailer's done we go to this projector and it's going to take about three minutes to take this one down and get the next one queued up and that's why movie trailers to this day are still roughly two to three minutes long it started all the way back when they had to manually do all of that I think from that point on, it changed my movie-going experience because I realized that the theater is not just one-dimensional, that the theater is actually two-dimensional, that there's two rooms, and that the room I'm sitting in with my soda and my popcorn in the film, that I am simply the recipient of what is actually happening in that room. So Jesus... He uses this phrase as he's teaching us to pray. Our Father. We've spent the last couple of weeks talking about just the beginning. And he, our Father in heaven. It's the next thing he says. He, he wants us to know not just who we're talking to, right? And we kind of we teased it out a little bit last week. Who do you think you're talking to? That he's holy, that he's set apart, that he's God. Our Father in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but me being raised in the American evangelical church, that term in heaven, it kind of conjures up these images of like cotton candy clouds, fat baby angels playing harps, and an old man sitting on a cement throne. It's not a real compelling picture for a future hope. But then I think about how maybe Jesus' original hearers would have heard that, who weren't inundated with medieval artwork and the images that we've all grown up with. And I think maybe for them, that imagery of God being in heaven was comforting to them. Because here's a word that was used <clears throat> in their scriptures to mean the heavens, which meant kind of everything that you see, everything that's in the air. And I suppose in, in a way that could have been comforting to them to understand that God is everywhere, that he's in the heavens, right? He's not out there. He's not the big guy upstairs, right? He's not far away, that he's right here, right now. And I suppose in one sense, that that could be a comforting picture. But compelling, I don't know. And the reason being because in competition to that is food and drink and sex and admiration. And those are comforting as well. And so when you compete right here, right now, I think, the earthly pleasures, what's in this theater, tend to win out. They're right here. But then Jesus goes on and he keeps praying. He keeps teaching him the prayer. And then he uses this phrase. And this next phrase sheds light on the earlier phrase. In the next phrase, he says, your kingdom come. It's like he ties it all together. That there's a kingdom of heaven. And he wants us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. And now, all of a sudden, we have a different prayer.
Now, all of a sudden, we realize that we are not part of some religious system. We're part of a takeover. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer of defiance. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer of warfare. It's an act of, no, this world will not define me. This world is not going to be my identifying factor. And this theater is not my home. That my identity, my identity and my citizenship is in that room. It's in another dimension, and it's not all just this. And that we understand there's more to this room than just this room. That there's another room, and what happens in that room affects what happens in this room. We're part of a takeover. So uh, about a decade after the resurrection, we, uh, we meet this, this convert to Christianity. His name is Paul. Paul ends up dedicating his entire life to missionary work, to the gospel, to your kingdom come. His whole life revolves around that phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done. And he writes this letter to this church in Ephesus. And Ephesus today would kind of be like a sort of, a, generically speaking, kind of like where, where modern day Turkey would be. Um, you got Galatia, you got Ephesus. And to put, to put Ephesus like on the map in our brains a little bit, uh, picture Chicago. Uh, it was on the water like Chicago. It was the center of culture. Like this wasn't out in the by and by. It wasn't like Galatia. Galatia was like Bushnell, Illinois. You know, it, was, it was Hudsonville. That was like out. That was farm country a little bit. Uh, that was out there. But Ephesus was like Chicago. That's where the schools were. It's where the temples to all the different gods were. It's where the library, the, some of the earliest libraries were in Ephesus. Um, this was the center of culture, of arts, of museum, of the Colosseum. That's Ephesus. Hugely populated. And what we learn about the church in Ephesus is John and Timothy are pastoring this church, and it grows to different historians estimate it somewhere between 7,000 and 10,000 people meeting regularly in the Colosseum there in downtown. So they're meeting at Van Andel. It's a mega church. So next time one of your friends says, oh, dude, mega churches are like not biblical, you say, man, you should read your Bible. Uh, but anyway, that's a different conversation for a different day. Because we need them all, right? We need house churches and we need big churches. If you have an issue with big church, chances are you don't have an issue with big church. You have an issue with something that you disagree with within that big church, probably a person. And that's a different topic for a different day. They're probably not going to talk about from up front. And Paul writes to the Ephesian church. And here's the thing. He doesn't have any correction for him. Like, Paul has all these letters that he's writing to all these different churches throughout his lifetime. Like, he plants a church, then he goes on after about three or five years, and then he'll write letters back to these other churches. Hey, I'm hoping to come back and visit. See, I hope you guys are doing well. I hope you're growing. I hope things are going good. It sounds like they are. I'm getting reports. People are talking about you. But, hey, I, here's there's some crazy stuff you guys are doing. There's some weird stuff, and you guys are doing this. Don't do it this way. Do it this way. And you guys are kind of at each other. You need to forbear. You need to forgive. You need to work this out. And then we get to the Ephesian church, and he's like, I don't even know what to say. You guys are nailing it. Like, God is just working through you. You've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing of Christ. Your church is growing. Your leadership is healthy. Your people are healthy. The gospel is going out, right? You're taking care of the poor. You're adopting. Like, they're doing all this stuff. And so the letter's short. Paul just, like, kind of, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And he gets to the end of the letter, and it's kind of an encouragement 
uh, he writes this to the church. Paul's in prison while he's writing this. And he says, for our struggle, our meaning us as believers, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, in other words, when it hits the fan, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. It's as if Paul is explaining to the early church, this room isn't the only room. And the fight and the struggle that you're having is not with the people in this room. In other words, he's, he's pointing to another room. There's another room that's part of this room. And it's all one room, that there's a heavenly realm. It's not the heavens. It's not heaven out there, you know, south of Jupiter somewhere. It's right here, right now. It's a part of this creation. And he's saying that what happens in that room affects what happens in this room. And that your fight is not with people, it's not with political powers, and it's not with other religions. I'm going to say that again. Your fight is not, our fight is not with people, right? We're not going to take picket signs down to whatever rally and culture war we want to start. It's not with people. It's not with political parties, right? It's not a culture war. It's not even a fight with other religions. It's a spiritual battle. It's not a fight with people. It's a fight. The Christian life is a fight for people. It's a fight for people. That's what Paul, he just, he kind of wants to just leave him with that little note. Hey, just remember, right? It's, it's not, it's not them. It's deeper than that. And this is why we can have power to love our enemies, to pray for our enemies, because they're not our enemy. That the real enemy is what's going on in that other room, that there's a spiritual force of evil at work in the world, and it hates people because they're made in the image of God. See, I need to hear this. I need to hear Paul's words in Ephesians 6 because I forget that I'm in the middle of a war. My war is not with unbelievers. My war is not with people. My war is not even with people who disagree with me. <laughs> and I need to remember and I think we all need to remember that the Christian life is a battlefield. Because here's the thing. I like creature comforts. I like staying up too late and sleeping in too long. It's not that I'm doing the wrong thing. It's that I like to do nothing. Apathy really is the greatest sin. I get lulled to sleep. Like that scene where Ka in Jungle Book, the snake, and he kind of hypnotizes Mowgli. That's me and everything that's available to me in this country. My Netflix queue, my Hulu queue, my Disney Plus queue, my Apple Plus queue, pizza, tacos, Coke, 
None of those things are bad in and of themselves. Do you understand, though? Like, I remember speaking at a youth retreat about 15 years ago, and this was in the days of MySpace, and I talked about MySpace during one of my talks. The next day, I talked about the Skeletones MySpace, and this girl said, Skeletones has a MySpace? I thought you said MySpace was bad. Before I even got a chance to answer, one of the other students says to her, no dummy. <laughs> he didn't say MySpace is bad. He said the amount of time that we spend on things like MySpace. I was like, thank you. Great. I'm taking you with me next time I speak somewhere. But that's exactly it, right? Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and Netflix and going out to pizza and shining the motorcycle and buying a new Jeep and getting a new house and making some more babies. Like all those things are good things and they can be gifts in their proper place. But the thing is, I don't know about you, but I get lulled to sleep by them. And I forget that I'm in the middle of a battle. When Jesus is having this conversation with one of his students, Peter, and he looks at Peter, he has spent about three, three years almost with him at this point. He's been training him. He's been talking to him. He says, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, there's a little play on words there, right? We've all heard that because Peter, his name is Petra. Petra means rock. Maybe you have the two CD set. And so he's using this play on words. Uh, Peter, Petra, rock. Peter, on this rock, I am going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this word that Jesus uses for church, it's not a word that means a quaint little old country church building out in the by and by. The word that Jesus uses for church is this word ecclesia. Ecclesia doesn't have any religious connotation at all. What an ecclesia was in that culture at that time was, let's say, we're a village. And we are the village of Scott. Scott's our leader. And so Scott makes sure that we all have weed. And we love Scott as our leader. We love you, Scott. That's, and I would make you my leader because you do get the best. Anyway, we'll take that out of the podcast for people who don't go to this church and wouldn't understand what we're talking about. Maybe we should leave it in the podcast. People are like, that's church I'm going to because they talk about weed and Jesus. And that's a decent reconciliation. Anyway, so here we are. We're in the village of Scott. Scott is our leader. But we find out, we find out, right, <clears throat> that the... Uh, I was trying to think, I, I'm not going to use, uh, I was going to use a name that would have been funny, and then I realized, eh, maybe it won't be funny. So we'll just go with the village of Eric, right? So we find out that the village of Eric down the road, they want our stuff. They want our goats, they want our cattle, they want our kids, and they want our wives. And we find out that the village of Eric, right, with all their medical personnel, are coming against the village of Scott while they're all listening to Led Zeppelin. And this isn't going to go well. So what Scott would do is Scott would gather his team. And he's like, we need an ecclesia. An ecclesia, it means called out ones. So what you would do is you would go get the men of the village. So you go get your team. You go get your people. You go get your guys. All right, I got to go get the men of the... And what you would do is so like, so Nick is like your town crier. You go to Nick. Nick, we just found out that the village of Eric is heading this way and they're going to hurt us. And so Nick's job is to go get a shofar. Aaron, would you like to explain to us what a shofar is? It's a horn. It's a horn. I knew that Aaron would know that. 
So Nick would grab like this old, this old ram's horn and he would use it as a trumpet. And he would just blow that horn. That's the sound it makes. I heard it in Bible college. It's pretty awesome, actually. It's a very distinct sound. And every single one of the men in town. So Aaron, he's, he's, at, he's at work. He's doing his thing. He's shooting a, a, a photography at a wedding 2,000 years ago. right? He's doing his job. And Aaron hears the shofar, he hears the horn, he hears the trumpet sound, and he knows, hey, I got to get to this location, I got to get to the town square, because we have a meeting, we have an ecclesia, I am being called out. That means I'm going to stop what I'm doing, and I got to get here, because we're about to go to war. And so Aaron would hear that call, he would head all the... All the men in the village, they'd come meet. All the women knew we're about to get ready for the fight of our lives. They're batting down the hatches at house, right? They're bringing the kids in because it's about to go down. That's what an ecclesia was. It was sounding the alarm. It was the air raid siren that says, hey, it's about to get crazy and we got to get ready. That's the word Jesus uses. So in other words, when you became a Christian and when I became a Christian, you didn't, and I didn't just get saved. You and I got enlisted. We are in God's army. Remember that Carmen song? God's got army. Not afraid to fight. Soldiers of the cross. The children of the light. Anyway, if you don't know who Carmen is, he's a lounge singer. He got saved and wrote really corny songs, but they're also really catchy and fun. So do whatever you want with that. Anyway, but this army isn't against other people. It's not against another tribe, another village, another religion, another people group. It was a spiritual battle. That's the word Jesus uses here. Ecclesia, called out ones. He's building an army. He's building a force. And the banner of that is your kingdom come. Stop living like it's peacetime. Like, can you imagine if the people in Ukraine right now kept on going about their daily activities as if nothing else was happening in another room? Like, how surprised they would be that all of a sudden a tank rolls through their living room. And if they're not prepared for it, they're so confused. Why is there a tank in my living room? Why did my neighbor's apartment building get bombed out? And yet, as believers, we tend to live like that. We're just like, yeah, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket around us, but we're living like it's peacetime. It's like watching the band on the deck of the Titanic. Like, boy, our feet sure are wet and cold. We don't know why, but keep on playing the cello. And we go around through life and stuff happens to us and we get hit with things and we're like, oh, Jesus, what's happening to me? What's happening to you is you're in the middle of a battle. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Yeah, you're going to take some hits. Yeah, people are going to break your heart. Yes, the system is going to fail you. Yes, you're going to get taken advantage of, even within the church. People, fellow believers are going to hurt you. Sometimes they mean to, and sometimes they don't. And if you're not armed, like Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, you're not armed with humility and gentleness and reconciliation. You will die in the fight. 
Or you can just sleep through the battle, and every time it hurts, just comfort yourself with another drink, another snack, another movie, some more admiration, right? And just keep anesthetizing that, la, 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 la. Stop! Christian, stop living like it's peacetime. We are not in the middle of peace right now. The Lord's Prayer is a declaration of war, and it's an act of defiance. This kingdom will not be my home. This kingdom, this life is not my last life. This go-around is not my last go-around, right? This is the battle. We will get to the peace later. So Paul writes later, he writes to this church in Corinth. By the way, I may have inadvertently told you the wrong spot for Ephesus, so if you look it up in the map later, I apologize. It is on the water. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes this. Though we live in the world, though we live in this theater, though we're in this room, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. In other words, he's saying, look, we, we as Christians, we're, we're at war, but not the kind of war that the world, not with weapons, not with things that hurt people. Our war is a different war. He goes and he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's why we don't beat our kids to make them obey. That's why we don't bruise our enemies when they don't see the world the way we see it that what Paul is saying here is the weapons we use, they're not like the weapons the world uses. Our weapon is we kill them with kindness. That's our weapon. We kill them with kindness. The weapons that we use are humility, suffering well, serving others, and defiance. Some of you ladies were a part of the book study a few years ago when the ladies went through Corey Ten Boom's hiding place. Corey Ten Boom was a Holocaust survivor. Her family's crime was hiding Jews in their family home in defiance of the Nazi regime. She writes in the hiding place, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him a former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. So this is after the Holocaust. Corey's speaking in churches, and she sees one of the guards. And suddenly it was all there, she writes the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. And he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, miss, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. 
And I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me. Help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I couldn't. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I can't forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than it's on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. And when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. Humility, suffering, surrender, defiance. Humility to shake the hand of your abuser. Surrender for your right to revenge and a defiance to the desire to withhold God's affection from others. There's a phrase that I learned early on as a believer. It's not explicitly in scripture, but the idea is implicitly there. N-O-T-W, not of this world. That you and I were in this world we're in this theater, we're in this room, but we're not of it. We don't belong to it. We're not, we're not a, our citizenship isn't here. Our governing force isn't here. Our allegiance isn't to this world. It's to another one. It's to the kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I want to close out our time together this morning and thank you guys for making the trek through the nasty roads to get here. That was such a quandary trying to decide that. Um, Nick and I were talking late last night and the conversation continued this morning. It's like, ah, I can make a case both ways. So um, thank you guys who did brave the elements. And for those that stayed home, I am glad for them because if you feel like you can't, you can't. I want to leave us with two thoughts from two different authors. The first one is from Rob Bell. Rob Bell, in his book, Jesus Wants to Save Christians, he wrote this years ago. Most of the Bible is a history told by people living in lands occupied by conquering superpowers. It's a book written 
from the underside of power. It's an oppression narrative. The majority of the Bible was written by a minority people living under the rule and reign of massive, mighty empires, from the Egyptian Empire to the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire to the Assyrian Empire to the Roman Empire. He says this can make the Bible a very difficult book to understand if you're reading it as a citizen of the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. We are in the world. We're not of the world. The last one, and I chose just to read this in its entirety because I think that author Jeff Kinney says it perfectly, and then we'll pray together. In his book, The End of America, Jeff Kinney, he writes this. Every July 4th, our country is repainted red, white, and blue for a day. We pause from our busy schedules to celebrate with flame-grilled burgers, family gatherings, and fireworks. However, as wonderful and inspiring as this is, being a citizen of this country is not my highest privilege or my primary identity. Being a child of God is. One is earthly, the other heavenly. One temporal, the other eternal. And because of this, my greatest and highest loyalty lies with another kingdom, a kingdom whose coming Jesus asked us to pray for. It's become apparent to me that we in the American church have lost a fundamental perspective. It's a flaw in our collective faith that must be corrected. Our problem is that we think and act like we actually belong here, like this earth is our home. Yes, we currently live here, but according to the Bible, we as Christians also enjoy a unique dual citizenship. As Paul reminded the Philippian believers, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is more than just a comforting thought or a trendy Christian meme. It's a theological reality concerning our ultimate destiny. It's a citizenship that comes with inherent privileges and responsibilities. It means that heaven, not this world, is where our primary allegiance lies. Though we're often mired in the mud of earthly necessities, Paul urges us to order our priorities. It's not that things down here are unimportant. It's just that they're not of the utmost importance. This means there's something more essential and satisfying than making money, something more beneficial than getting an education or landing that dream job, something even more worthwhile than a well-deserved vacation, a good family, or a great marriage. Though all of the above are good things and gifts from God, and though they all have their merit and place here on earth, nothing compares to that which is heavenly. We belong to him. His presence is our pursuit, and his kingdom our cause. Jesus Christ came to die for us, and what motivated him to endure the cross and suffer death was a joy awaiting for him in heaven. That heavenly joy was bringing glory to the Father and bringing salvation to those who would believe. He closes with this, this eternal perspective to which we are called and commanded supersedes and overrules all 
temporary priorities. Then in a clever play on words, he closes, it trumps earthly pursuits and outranks human obligations. It means we see ourselves as what we actually are, first and foremost, disciples. Children, followers, worshipers, servants of the Most High, aliens and strangers in a foreign land. This is our identity, our blood-bought eternal reality. It's only when we view ourselves in this manner that we can truly appreciate, pursue, and properly steward the privilege of being Christians in a country like America. I broke this into two parts. Today is the setup. Next week is kind of the execution. So next week, we're going to unpack this idea of your kingdom come. And in part two, I stole this from Stephen Covey. We're going to talk about the seven habits of highly effective Christians. I hope you can be here. As I look back to that day that I was walking through a Kmart, I think maybe the Virgin Mary could have been on the cover of Twisted Sisters Stay Hungry album. Maybe Dee Snyder's defiance is exactly the spirit that the Lord's Prayer should be prayed in. A spirit that says, no, we're not going to take it anymore. We're not going to live as the rest of the world. You and I are ambassadors for Christ, Scripture says. This isn't our home. We represent a heavenly home, a heavenly kingdom, an eternal one. And that's what all of our priorities will revolve around. We'll unpack that next week in the seven habits of highly effective Christians. Would you stand together? We're going to pray this. Rochelle has it on the front of our bulletin. Houchins, thanks for the donuts. Again. I'm never going to fit into that two-piece. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.